so glad that you're here today, and uh, thank you for being here. If this, if this is your first time here at Lay Point, we're so glad that you came to worship with us, and as you came in, you should receive a program. And inside that program is a little card that says connection card. We ask you to take that card, fill it out, and then and at the end, we'll have an offering time, and you can drop that card in the offering basket um, before you leave today. I want to thank you that, you know, well, thank you for being here today to worship with us here at Lay Point. And um, next Sunday is a Baptism Sunday. Hope that you make plans to be here. And uh, maybe you're here and you need to take that next step in, in following Jesus in baptism. And uh, if that's you this morning, we've got a good number of people that are planning on being baptized next week. And I invite you to be a part of it. It'll be a great day next Sunday morning. We're also starting a brand a brand new message series next week called When Love Speaks. When Love Speaks. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the greatest act of love, you know, when Jesus was dying on the cross for our sin. And, uh, but there were some powerful, powerful words that Jesus spoke while he was on that cross. And as we prepare our hearts for the, the Easter season, I felt that we could go through, through this. Um, each week, just look at a different saying, different words that Jesus spoke when he was speaking from the cross. And, um, and that's a powerful series. I'm looking forward to that. That starts next week. It'll be a great Sunday to be here. And I hope that you make plans to be here next Sunday. Well, we're wrapping up this series called The Grudge. And, um, and I, uh, this has been a powerful, powerful sermon series. And I, I know that many of you, God has been working. God has been working in your heart. And um, you know, saw that video before I came up here. Just uh, different people holding a piece of glass or barbed wire, or fire, and he said, "Man, that's crazy. Who would hold on to those kind of things?" And yet, at the same time, in our relationship, uh, some of you are holding on, on to some painful things in your life, and you're holding on to grudges, and it's causing more damage than you realize. And I, I pray that in this series that there has been some healing. Um, in your life and in the relationship and uh, as you process these things that we've been talking about. Now today as we close the series, I want to talk about uh, one more challenging thought and, we, um, and that is how to seek forgiveness from others. How to seek forgiveness. And, and it's challenging and let me illustrate it this way. I want your participation if I can. Um, if I were to ask in this room, how many of you have had someone either lie to you or disappoint you, betray you, or they've hurt you in some way? If that's true, will you raise your hand and say, that's happened, someone has done that to me? And I think most of us here in the room, you were really quick to raise your hand at that question. But if I were to ask you, how many of you have done those very same things to other people, raise your hand. And I, okay, and now some of you are like, I, I did it, you know, but some of us, you know, let's be honest, that's not an easy question to answer. You know, we're a little bit more hesitant to, uh, uh, to answer that question. Why? Because it's easier to play the role of the victim and not play the role of the offender. We don't like to see ourselves as the, as the one who offends. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about what we do when we're the person that hurt someone. And we're going to look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. 
He preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And he's in a very important part of this message. In Matthew chapter 5, we talked about relationship. And I want to kind of dive in. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 23. He said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar. In, in other words, let me just pause here. If, if you're in the temple, the Bible says, or in our context, if you're going to church, and you're going to church, you know, you're offering the gift at the altar, and the, Jesus says, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. So you've hurt of someone's feelings, you've offended somebody, you've let someone down, you've lied to someone, and you're going to worship, and, and while you're worshiping, you remember, oh my goodness, someone I love, someone I know, I've hurt them. I have caused harm in that relationship. And Jesus says in verse 24, he said, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, in other words, before you do anything else, he said, first go. And that word go in the Greek language, it, it implies a very, it implies an intense, intense action. This is the word of intensity in the way that the, the Greek uh, language portrays this word. In other words, do whatever it takes. Go. Make it happen. Make it, go do what you got to do. Work hard to do it. Overcome whatever obstacles that happen to thrown in your way. Go. And then he says, first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gifts. And, and, and to me, this is really interesting because I can't find another place in Scripture where the Bible says that there's something that takes place as a higher priority over the worship of God. We see Jesus saying to us, there's something that takes priority even over the worship of God, and that is to honor God by doing your part to bring restoration in a relationship. And here's the principle. If you're taking note, this is the principle that I hope you see this morning. You will never enjoy the fullness of your relationship with God until your conscience is clear. Until you have a clear conscience. You'll never enjoy the fullness of everything that God has. Your relationship with God won't quite all be there until you have a clear conscience. And let me define a, a clear conscience. A clear conscience is the ability to say, there is no one alive that I have ever wronged, offended, or hurt in any way that I have not gone back to and made it right with God and with them. Let me say that again. It's the ability to say there's no one alive that I have ever wronged, offended, or hurt in any way that I have not gone back to and made it right with God and with them. Clear conscience. And first Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse number 5, the Apostle Paul, he said this, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that come from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. Paul says, listen, my goal in writing this letter to, to Timothy, he said, my goal is that you will be filled with love that comes from a, a, a pure heart, a heart that's full of integrity 
and, and, a, and, a, and a clear mind, a clear conscience, and, and a genuine, genuine, real faith. You don't just talk it, you just walk it. And that's what Paul's saying. Man, if we're going to pursue a goal of love, then we must pursue a good, a good clean conscience with other people. You will never enjoy the fullness of your relationship with God until your conscience is clear. And according to what Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 5, and I think this is so important, you cannot be right with God if you're not right with each other. That's a powerful statement. And we can focus on our vertical relationship with God and say, hey, you know, I love you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I lift my hand to you. But if your relationship with us, your horizontal relationship with others, it's not where it should be. Jesus is saying, that has a play, that has an effect in how you worship me. And so your horizontal relationship matters. It matters. If you want to walk close with God and have a, the relationship you want with God, it matters how you deal and relate with other people. And so how do we have a clear conscience? Well, we go back to Matthew chapter 5, and we go back earlier in the sermon, and we, we get to the part in the sermon where Jesus had the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. I want to look at one of the Beatitudes, and that's in Matthew 5, verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. I want you all to say that. Say that with me. Peacemakers. Peacemakers. All right, say it with me. Peacemakers. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. All right, let's do it one more time. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Now, peacemakers, the interesting word. Blessed are the peacemakers. I want you to notice, Jesus Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He didn't say that, did he? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. And there's a difference. There's a real difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. If you're taking notes, a peacekeeper, they often avoid confrontation to keep peace. They avoid it. They avoid confrontation. They don't, they, now by the way, it's not bad to be a peacekeeper. And it's worth to be a troublemaker, all right? It's worth to be a troublemaker. But Jesus said, hey, Jesus said, hey, don't just be a peacekeeper. All right? That's what some of us in our relationship, that's what it's like. We're just trying to keep the peace. You know, we don't, we say, you know what, I don't want to fight about it. You know, I, I, I just pretend like everything's okay. I just look the other way. I just keep the status quo. You know, if there's tension in the family, we just ignore it. We just ignore the tension. We don't want time to get together for the Christmas party, the family Christmas parties or Christmas birthday party, and their tension, we're just not going to deal with it. We're just going to ignore it. We're going to avoid it because we just want to keep the peace. And Jesus said, no, peacemaking is so much better than just trying to keep the peace. Now, peacemaking, if you're taking note, peacemakers embrace confrontation to make peace. So peacekeeper. They avoid it, but peacemaker, a peacemaker, he embraced it. And Jesus said this. He said in Matthew 5, he said, go, and before you offer your gift to the Lord, before you go to worship, he said, initiate 
go first, apologize, do whatever it takes, even if you have to work through some very difficult things to make peace where there's no peace. Make no peace. Now, sometimes, you know, I joke around, you know, and this is a joke, but this is not really the way we should live. But I joke around, you know, with, with other people and say, hey, you know, um, the key to a happy, you know, to a happy life is a happy wife. You know, I might also say this, I can either choose to be happy or choose to be right. You can't have both. <laughs> uh, and then I say, I choose happy. <laughs> you know, I might be right, you know, but I don't want the confrontation. But you know, sometimes that's the way we think. Now, we would be better than that. Karen and I, you know, we sometimes deal with the difficult conversation that needs to happen. Because life is so much better. Because blessed are the peacemakers who make an effort so that they can improve their relationship rather than just going through the status quo. See, a peacekeeper mindset, you know, don't want to rock the boat, just keep the status quo, but a peacemaking mindset, they don't want to, just, they don't want to settle to be happy and fake. They, they want to go deeper in their relationship. That's a peacemaker. And Jesus is challenging us to be peacemakers. He said, don't, don't just pretend. Don't just pretend. But oftentimes, we just want to pretend. We want to pretend. Um, we avoid confrontation. We look the other way. We ignore what I call the elephant in the room. The elephants in the room. And, and here's, the, here's the problem with elephants in the room. Right? You know, they both show up out of the blue. They show up uninvited, all right? They always show up uninvited. And they, and they come in, and, and, and they're there. And uh, man, somebody got a muscle car out there. <laughs> I heard that. I felt that. All right. <laughs> Woo. All right. So the, the, the elephant comes in uninvited. And, and by the way, it's an infant mode, okay? It's an infant stage. And at first, this is where a lot of people say, you know what, not a big deal, I just ignore it, you know, I'm not going to let this bother me, you know, even though it does bother you. Uh, and, and the problem with the elephant, it doesn't stay small. Elephants get bigger. And the bigger they get, the smellier they get. <laughs> and they don't leave. In fact, this is the myth of the elephant in the room, if you're taking note. The myth is this. If we ignore it, it will go away on its own. And we think that's what happened. You know, if we, let it, if we just pretend it's not there, they'll eventually get bored with the conversation, get bored with the relationship, and find its way out the front door. But that doesn't happen. If you leave it there, it's going to stay there. And oftentimes, if you try to just... Peace, keep the peace. So I want to be a peacekeeper. And I don't want to deal with the elephant in the room. Guess what? Elephant stays. But making peace, being a peacemaker, confronting, confronting it, embracing, you know, not avoiding it, but embracing the confrontation, embrace, you know, not avoiding the elephant. Then you find that elephant to go away. Now, let me also say this. It's another helpful idea here. You know, when the elephant is smaller, it's easier to get rid of. 
so oftentimes we just let it build up. We let it build up. We let it build up. To the point where you say, man, I've had it up to here. And it's your fault for allowing it to, be, for allowing it to get up to here. You should have dealt with it when it's a baby. Now you've got this big old monster in your living room. And like, man, I can't get rid of this. And it's going to cause some major destruction now to get rid of this elephant. Elephant in the room. There may be some elephants in your marriage. There may be some elephants at work, at school. There may be some elephants with your friends and maybe some other family members, like your aunt, uncle, brother, sister. Uh, there may be some elephants in the church. There may be a big old thinking elephant right here in this room. <laughs> the elephants in the room, it's impossible to keep the peace with elephants. But Jesus is calling us to be peacemakers. Be willing to embrace confrontation if that's what it takes to make peace. Now, let me give you the friends and enemies to peacemaking. And if you're taking note, the two thoughts here. The greatest enemy to peacemaking is pride. The greatest enemy is pride. And if you're here this morning, you're elbowing someone next to you right now. Don't do that. That's not good. But the greatest friend, though, to peacemaking is the opposite of pride, and that's humility. Humility. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility, it comes wisdom. Pride says that you show me a relationship, you know, with, with tension. And I'll show you one, maybe two people in that room that are both very proudful. Both of them would say, you know, I'm not going to apologize. You know, he did it first or she did it first or he did more, he caused more pain or she caused more pain than I caused pain. You know, and pride says, man, he needs to go first. I'm the victim, you know. I'm the one that's been offended the most. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. When, a, when you're talking about two people and there's tension in the room, there's a good chance that you're both at fault. There's a good chance. You know, and yeah, you, might, you might not have all the fault. It might just be a small portion of the fault, maybe 2%, 3%, 10%, and the other person's 90%. But you need to own your part. You have a part in it. And you're at fault too. Romans chapter 12, verse number 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, not him or not her, but as much as it depends on you live at peace with everyone. You are not responsible for the other person, but you are responsible for your own action. And if you've only done 1% of the wrong, and the other person did 99%, you need to own your 1%. You need to own it. Now, just for the record, I just got to say this, and this is a helpful little tip from my experience with Karen. Um, <laughs> don't ever bring percentage into the conversation. <laughs> don't say, you know, hey, honey, you know, I'm sorry for my 2%. You did your 98%. <laughs> Come on, you know, don't, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Bad idea. It won't work. The point is, we're all wrong in some ways. And Christ says, I'm the victim, not me. 
It's not my fault. I'm the victim. You need to apologize. But humility, on the other hand, says, you know what? I own a part. I have a part in this. I actually have been wrong, and I'm going to be faithful to God, and, and I'm going to humble myself. And when you humble yourself, here's what happens. You elevate the relationship above you. You elevate the relationship above yourself. Even if you feel like you're right, even if you feel like you're right, what you say is, you know what? I love and I value that person much more than I love just being right. I love that person more than I love being right. You elevate the relationship above yourself. And imagine what God could do in your heart if you would take pride out and replace it with humility. And for some of you this morning, this is where you're at right now. This is what's holding you back from a clear conscience. It's pride. And perhaps today you say, you know what, I'm going to replace my pride with humility. And I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm going to be the better person. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to go initiate. I'm going to take care of this. Because I can't stop living with an unclear conscience. I want to have a conscience that's clear. I want to get rid of that elephant in the room. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time here. And I want to talk very specifically on how to apologize with integrity. I want to get practical. Practical here. And, uh, and let's just be honest. There's a right way. There's a right way to apologize. And there's a wrong way to apologize. And, and by the way, don't, if someone this week calls you up or meets with you to, to, to take this message to heart and say, hey, you know, I need to talk to you. I do some things I need to you know, deal with. And they ask for your forgiveness. Don't pull out your handout notes and say, man, you missed point number three, you jerk. <laughs> don't, don't do that, okay? Give that person some grace, some love, and, 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 and see the heart. See the heart of that person. All right? So let's give you six specific things. And if you're taking notes, we'll go through it pretty quick. When you say you're sorry and your apology, I encourage you to admit specific Actions and attitudes. Be specific. Don't be vague. Don't say, you know, if I ever have hurt you for anything, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't, that's the cop out, okay? Be specific. Say, I'm really sorry that I yelled at you. I, I am sorry that I lied to you. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. Please forgive me. I, I didn't call you, and I should have called you. I, I, I gave in to my own lustful desires, and I did something that was heartbreaking to you, and, and I'm sorry. I have sinned. Call it what it is. Be specific. Call it what it is. And, and when you start doing that, you start seeing God begin a healing work in your life. Be specific. Number two, don't make excuses. This is the classic, sorry, but not sorry. Have you ever had those before? You know, hey, I'm sorry. You know, and then they start justifying why they did it to try to lessen the, what they did. Okay, sorry, but not sorry. Um, that's, that's happened. I'm sure you've seen it. I know I've done it. All right, don't make excuses. You know, 
a guy got caught looking at pornography. And he tried to transfer blame to his wife. And he said, well, if you had been there meeting my knees, I wouldn't have done this. Whoa, 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 whoa. Own it. No excuses. Say, say I'm sorry. I betrayed you. Period. No excuses. He said, no, I'm sorry, honey, that I overspend. But the reason I overspend and spend too much money is because you're a cheapo and you never buy me anything. <laughs> That's an excuse. You just need to own it. He said, man, I spend so much money because I'm materialistic and I've got a problem. I'm sorry. Period. Period. Don't make excuses. Number three, accept the consequences. Accept the consequences. If you gossiped or you lied about your best friend and your best friend is a little slower to trust you again, that's a consequence. You have to rebuild some of that trust. If you're a teenager and you're on your phone with inappropriate conversations or you're looking at inappropriate stuff on the internet and your parent catches you and they forgive you and yet they take your phone away for three months. Don't be a baby and whine and say, man, that's not fair. Accept the consequences. Accept the consequences. They're doing that for a reason. You go out of town and you have an affair on your spouse. And you come back and you confess and you ask you know, God to forgive you of your sin, your spouse forgiving you of your sin and to have. But your spouse says, you know, I prefer that you don't travel out of town alone again. And you say, well, I have to because, you know, it's my job. Change jobs. That's a consequence. That's a consequence. That's tough. You shouldn't have screwed around on your spouse when you were out of town. And part of the apology is owning up the consequence. Owning it. Number four, moving on, change your behavior. Apologize, but show, show feet to your to your uh, apology and say, you know, I'm going to do some things in my life. I'm going to, I'm going to go to celebrate recovery or I'm going to go to AA or, or, or I'm going to you know, go to counseling and, uh, or I'm going to do you know, A, B, C so that I can grow in my walk. I'm going to be held accountable to my friends and life groups. I'm going to have them pray. I'm going to talk to them. I want them to keep me accountable. Change your behavior. Put feet to your apologies. Number five, ask for forgiveness, ask for it. Don't just say, I'm sorry. I mean, that works, okay? But go deeper, go deeper. Instead say, I was wrong, be specific, and then say, will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? And that's much more powerful than just saying, I'm sorry. That's practical practical thought, and we don't have the time, but in Genesis chapter 50, it's a great story of Joseph forgiving his brothers. And I want you, if you get a chance this week, this afternoon, read this story and see a beautiful story of the, of the brothers asking for forgiveness. And notice how they asked, and notice how Joseph responded in a beautiful way of restoration. Asked. For forgiveness. Number six, last one, get back on track. Get back on track. Look at Matthew 5, 24, one more time. 
And he said, let's go be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gifts. He said, after you've done what you believe God is calling you to do, to make things right with the other person, to make the peace, or be a peacemaker, Jesus commands you to come back and offer your gifts. He doesn't say, now go be reconciled with that person, and I'll make things right, and then go home for two weeks and mope. And after a couple of weeks of moping around, then you come back. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, get back on track. Get back to it. Make it right. And it's tempting for a lot of us to let something like this completely sidetrack what God is doing in your life. Now, I got to say this. When you make things right, it might be a little awkward. There might be some, you know, as you're working through this and as two human beings trying to process forgiveness, and, and depending on how big it is and what it might be, you know, and we got to understand that, you know, God is working in it. And it might take a season to, to, for God to work out the full effect of that sin or of that betrayal. But it doesn't mean you don't come back and worship. And you, you're here, you say, well, Scott, what if, what if they don't forgive me? What if I went and I asked for forgiveness? And I've hurt that person. I know I have. But what if they don't forgive? Then you have done what God has called you to do. You've done what God has called you to do. And then you have to leave room and time for God to do the rest. You can't control how the other person responds. Again, we see that in Romans chapter 12. He says, if it's possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do what you can. Continue to be faithful to do what God has called you to do. And leave the results with him. And there are some of us here this morning. God might be putting on your heart someone that you have a relationship that's broken. Maybe it's been broken recently. Maybe it's been broken for quite some time. And I pray that this week, as part of your next step, on the back of your card, there's a next step on your connection card. And on that connection card, it said, this week, I'm going to seek forgiveness. I'm going to go do my part to restore the relationship. I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes. No matter how difficult it might be, I'm going to let go of my pride. I'm going to humble myself because I value that person more than I value me. And it doesn't matter if I'm somewhat right or not at all right. I'm still going to do my part because I want to make the peace. Because the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. I pray this week we will seek to have a clear conscience so that we can have a relationship not only that's amazing with God in our vertical relationship, but that our horizontal relationship is where it needs to be so that we can grow in our walk with Christ.